0: But I'm really excited to, to have you on here. I appreciate you coming in today. I really do, uh, taking the time.
1: My pleasure. Um, Thank you for having me. On.
0: Yeah. <clears throat> so you, um, you know, I've got a lot of interesting questions to ask you, and we can dive right in. And, yeah, it's done. you know, I know, I know that you had a, you know, I know that you you had a, obviously a famous father. We we know that you know you yourself were a very popular athlete, and um, you know, you talk often about the loss of your father and how this has had a huge impact on you, but going, you know, back before that, like, dude, have you always been different? Like always?
1: I think, I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, an easy and a difficult question now. And I think about it a lot. And I, I think that as a child, I always felt, I think I always felt not good enough. If I look at it, look at it honestly, where I always had to be, it's quite simple, actually. I was always Joe Seeley. I'm Les Seeley's son. And I would I would actively say that as a child um, because I think I learned early that that one opened doors and two made people accept me quickly. Um, and I think I was never comfortable, really, in myself looking at it, looking back at it now. I always felt a little bit uneasy.
0: Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. So kind of like, you know, I had a successful father myself, very mm. successful. And I didn't necessarily identify because he wasn't famous. Mm. And I think the the fame must play a role in that as well. This this idol of sorts. Um, not to mention from what I've read, a great guy.
1: Yeah, I mean he was and he was playing, especially when he was playing for Man United. I mean you he could you'd go everywhere and people would know who he was instantly. You couldn't really even at some points walk down the street. And I think because, you know, whether or not this is right, I moved schools three or four times because as he moved clubs, we moved. And I think I learned probably to say to people to make friends, um, that's my dad. And the quicker I said that, the more people are interested because my dad didn't have an, an ordinary job. His job was he was in, he was a, a Premier League professional footballer and it made people interested in you and, and obviously you want to be your friends. Now, what I've learned in later life is I. Like, I probably, you know, I have a lot of people I know, but I really have really quite a small friendship group. And I probably, looking back, was probably wanted that as a child, but I didn't know that. So I probably didn't want to have friends really too much, but I also wanted to have friends. And it was just, it was just a mental, I was just never comfortable. And I think it, it put people at ease. It was an easy conversation for me to have. They didn't have to know too much about me now because. We can talk about Manchester United. We can talk about my father. We can talk about FA Cup, Premier League. We can talk about lots of different things, but I don't have to talk about me anymore. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I haven't got to be interested. I am interested because my dad's interesting. I definitely, definitely use that.
0: Wow. And, and so, yeah, who is Joe, yeah. right? You'd have to explain that. Who's Joe, right? And, and, and you didn't maybe really even know because the identity was wrapped up in this, you know, your famous father.
1: I suffered with that wow. in various forms all the way to my, to my mid thirties in one way or another. I was always, I always labeled myself until I was.
0: Meanwhile, up. you're a successful, you're a successful yeah. guy yourself. It's incredible that you, you know, you've yeah. got this, you're a great athlete yet. You still identify as that. That's, that's yeah. childhood, always, right? Childhood
1: Trial- Always mm. identified as me, something else. There was really three titles throughout my life that I would use. As I, uh, throughout my,
0: mm-hmm.
1: my, my, I suppose my, until I was sober, where I just felt, what am I doing? But there was always something and it really did affect me.
0: Wow. So, so the fame really did have an impact on, on life. And, uh, how'd your dad deal with that? I know you mentioned in a few of the interviews, you know, I've dealt with that on a periphery level, yeah. being in Hollywood for many years and, uh, being on a couple of TV shows and doing some things. It really is surreal. You know, you think, oh, it's going to be great. It's the best thing ever, you know, being famous people. A lot of people think that they think, oh, if I were famous, everything would be wonderful. But really, it just turns into what I saw as isolation, a lot of uh, paranoia. It's it's really not a fun thing to go through.
1: Yeah, I think if I look at it, there's two versions. My father was very private. So he wouldn't do any interviews, wouldn't really go to any public events. I mean, hardly ever would literally be indoors. He liked play, he liked cars, he would be outside cleaning his car, or playing with the engines, or, or doing whatever. And he, he always said to me throughout my life, and, and this is true actually. When you do something as a job, as as you're knowing what you do, it is just a job. So he'd say to me, when people say things to you, I remember, I'm your dad, but this is what I do for a living. This is how we eat. It isn't what everyone else thinks it is. This is true now, I know, but you know, back then I didn't. But this is how we we survive. It's how I pay for electricity. It's how I keep you warm, and this is how I eat. This is my job. This isn't this thing that everybody else thinks it is, um, and as I as I grew into it myself, I, I learned that. But I think that for me, I always wanted that. Where I don't think he did. I always wanted that notoriety. I always wanted to be known. I always wanted this or that. And actually, when you get it and you and you calm down, that it doesn't matter whether I, I'm on TV or I'm in the office, <laughs> as long as I'm living my life the right way. But you can get caught up in so much stuff that is actually not important, um, except for the fact that it can earn you some money and you can feed your children. Um, and it took me, again, another 35 years to to realise that, that it isn't important what the outside world thinks. It's, it's important that the people you live with, what they think. Um, and I think my dad... I was brought up like that. The only people that mattered was in that, in that home. And I think I spent a lot of time doing the opposite.
0: I feel you there. I, I, I've been in, in that same situation, seeking that outside validation. It really is a bottomless pit. It leads you nowhere. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I found it really interesting in, in some of your interviews where you've talked about, you know, that you would suffer in silence. Your father passes away. You suffered in silence and you regretted doing that. So I want to take a look at that. I mean, crying in the shower alone, right? Here you are not reaching out, not expressing your emotions, uh, trapping them. Okay. Does this kind of lead to the addiction where, wow, I pick up that first line and then, damn, that feels good. All of that anxiety, that pain, it's just immediately evaporated. How does that work?
1: It's the number one thing that the biggest mistake of my life that I tell people and anyone that asks me, I've I've lost a parent or I've lost a partner and I've got children. First thing I say to all of them is, I don't care what you do, but you make them talk. Regardless of how it works, whether it's you, a therapist or whatever, you make them talk because I had a lot happen. I lost my, my, my football career and my dad in the same week and he died. And obviously, I'd already I'd, I'd got injured the week before. But when he died, I thought I've got a, I've got a mum that's my mum's a very kind, kind woman, mum that's given since they were 14 years old. And I've got a younger brother. And I thought I need to step up here. So I made a decision, the wrong decision that nearly killed me really, that I'm not going to cry, I need to be strong. And then what I would do every day, and I did this for months, I would get in the shower, lock the door, roll up in a bowl and cry my eyes out for 20 minutes, come back out and try and get on with my day. Um, Whatever that might have entailed at at that point in my life. Most of that point, I I can't remember too well, to be honest with you. But that was the single most damaging thing, I believe mentally, that I did to myself because it took me 10 years to unravel, to even start to unravel that period of my life uh, where I thought I was okay. (laughs) <laughs> Looking back now, I was a, I was a mess, um, and then mm-hmm. moving, moving on to addiction, which was I went from not even drinking to being an addict within a year, full blown addict within a a year and a daily user within two years, and I say this, and it's a it's a horrible thing to say, but it's true. At the time when I first took drugs, that drug saved my life. By the end of it, it took everything from me. And what mm-hmm. what I mean by that is that that first time, that first. Few years, I was probably severely depressed, suicidal, and I was lost. And I took that drug that first time, second time, third time for, for a period, and I felt normal and happy. Obviously, that wasn't true. It's an illusion that I, my brain was causing. The drug was giving me with endorphins, but again, that caused me great problems because what I what I learned through at a young age and through the most painful period of my life, this thing. Will make me better and I don't have to deal with it because it just takes over doesn't it um and again that caused me so much damage but probably it it's so strange it kept me alive yeah it
0: kind of masked that need for emotional sobriety that you didn't have Right, it kind of covered that because, like, I talk about that often—the darkness that we have. We have this really deep dark thing going on. We all got it. We're all savages, right, in some way. Especially men who are, you know, that that can go out and fight for the money, fight for the job, Mm. fight for the woman, you know, and be that man, right? If if you're able to be that man, you've got that inside you somewhere—that killer instinct. I mean, we all do, right? And when we mask that and we try to act too tough, it's like you got to be vulnerable too. like, what's really alpha, what's really an alpha male, right? I mean, if we define it and we say an alpha male is someone who's super tough and masculine and all that, Mm. that's kind of misleading because, you know, alpha males can express their emotions, right? And they can, they can care. I think I've I've defined it differently as I've gotten older, by the way, Mm. uh, as the ability to express my emotions openly and honestly with people that I care about. And that's probably the damn scariest thing I've ever
1: done. I think it's the I I think one hundred percent right. I think that is such a an amazing thing when you get to that point when you can talk freely and openly about everything that's happened or Mm -hmm. you've done or they just just be honest is the number one key, I think, to to life for me. And we spent so many years, well, I certainly did, doing the complete opposite. But when you look back, you think I thought I cared about. You know the people i love well i couldn't have because i couldn't care about myself so how does that happen and how do you learn to do that i suppose it's time and gets over but before that you you can't care about i couldn't care for my look after my dog i couldn't look after myself you know and it's um -hmm. it's it's just damaging every damaging for everybody and everyone involved
0: yeah suffering and silence is really the worst thing that we can do and But it's so often the choice because the drug, man, it isolates you, you know, you you end up starting out, right? And you're like on this path where you're like partying with people, but I would end up like in my house, drunk, using Coke, whatever, like, and I'm alone, which is weird. It, It That drug, it isolates you, right? It starts out good for a couple of years. You party, whatever. It feels good. This guy. I got this cat back here. He's he's trouble. Um, yeah. He's always in my shows and my shots. That's all right.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: For those of you listening, I have this Highlander cat who just won't leave me alone. He can open up the barn door upstairs and come oh. in downstairs into the studio.
1: <laughs>
0: he's ruthless. He
1: probably, he probably <laughs> likes to find that. No, he wants to he, wants to he be does He does.
0: He not he doesn't want me to isolate Joe. He
1: doesn't,
0: <laughs> he doesn't want me to be alone. Um, but yeah, so isolation, I would just isolate myself, man. I would be like alone. And here I had, the, and the people that I thought were my friends when I was using, eh, they weren't my friends. I mean, the second you stop using, like I'm the guy at the bar, like, okay, I'll buy everybody drinks and then we're all going to go to my house afterwards. Well, once you stop buying the people the drinks and you stop being the guy that can provide any of the cocaine, you stop being that guy that can bring the girls around. They don't want to just go have a cup of coffee with you. They're done, right?
1: I think uh, you've, it's straight on and that's what it was like for me. My, I isolated from using very quickly. Um, very, very quickly. I never really spent a lot of times in nightclubs and bars using the people. I isolated within 15 months of, 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 of trying my first line. So I remember distinctly on my my 21st birthday. I, I um, I went to my nap my grandparents' house for, for Chinese from Chinese food. I left very quickly within you know within an hour. I picked up some coke on the way home, and I bought a bottle of Jack Daniels. And I sat in my apartment at the time for three days, using and drinking, and um, I never left. And I, that's the first time I remember doing it. But I also distinctly remember mm-hmm. thinking, "This is the best thing I've ever done," and why am I? Why am I socialising and doing it with other people? I think, and later on in my life, actually, the same thing actually helps me because I don't like busy places, pubs, uh, bars, nightclubs. I never liked them, so even using, I didn't like them. I felt uneasy. I don't like loads of people around me. I'm a bit of a worrier, mm-hmm. so as soon as I could get out of that them areas and just use by myself, from that point onwards, I don't think I ever returned. I literally would just use by myself. Um, completely and utterly seven days a week. And at that point in my life, I had really good friends, all playing professional sport and slowly but surely they didn't get rid of me, I got rid of them because I didn't want to go out for dinner. I didn't want to go around each other's houses and play poker with my friends or watch a film or go to the cinema. I wanted to sit indoors, take drugs and be by myself for as long as possible. Until I passed out, or yeah, so I passed out because I'd locked the door, people would knock on the door i wouldn't I'd pretend I weren't in, I'd have all the curtains shut. I'd be able to buy large enough amounts that I wouldn't have to stop for a period of time, and I'd keep going and keep going and keep going and keep going and it was like that from that point onwards to the end in different forms, I changed my using lots of different times throughout my using from daily, was a daily user for three years, two to three years, every single day. Um, I don't think it was every day I wasn't, I didn't drink then very often. I just, I just took drugs and I managed to function a lot of the time. And then obviously as you people, I had a, I had a period where I was really heavily using. I actually let a dealer live in my home um, for free, but I still bought the drugs. Because it was always there, it was there, it, I was accessible. And I, I remember my, my mother going away to South Africa for 10 days. And in all honesty, I don't think I slept for those 10 days. And I ended up passing out in my office in a chair. And I woke up two days later. And I woke up from that. And I remember thinking if I do not change at this point, I'm going to die. And I don't want to die because at that point, every time I sniffed a line, my eye would water. My everything was just—I was a mess. It was, I was fucked. So I'd do a yeah. lot. Like, and I'd—it just, t- just poisoned all the way through me. I just <laughs> destroyed my body. And I stopped, and I changed it. I didn't stop using, but I changed my using into less, and it went back to being semi-normal, where I'd be—I'd go out a bit more and do it where I thought it was okay, you know, bars. But then i will still go home and carry on. But it eased at that point. Um, but for while, right yeah, yeah. I was a nice lighter. I was a nice lighter to the
0: end. I've been there. I've been there. You know, and it's interesting to have enough money to, like, some people don't understand that. But when you have that kind of money, and, and I did in L.A., I, I mean, the dealer was always around, and they are around. When you've got the money, they're around. They're willing. Uh, you know, you had a dealer that um, – he had a real nice house and in, up in the hills in hollywood and um i didn't use for like a year or so the coke and um you know you call him and and like hey man where are you well i'm living in this tiny little one bedroom apartment now off Kawanga. you know it's like yeah. that's how their lives go yeah. you know they're 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 high and low constantly just like emotions are just they're just rapid rapidly changing but uh, when i would be alone man i would go through some serious paranoia without the sleep too i don't know about you but i would just see things i'd be talking to myself having conversations with myself like what am i it was like i was demonically possessed or something it was it was crazy did you go through that too cuz i just i couldn't when i didn't sleep i was just i was wild just pacing through my house
1: i was exactly like that and i and i can actually i remember quite a lot about this stuff so like the first time it happened to me i think I'd been, i was awake wife in, in the same apartment i was still 21 Ish. And um, I remember seeing like insects, black, like, black dots running around.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I was thinking I'd ants in my house or, or some bugs. And then I realised it wasn't, it was my eyes playing tricks on me. And paranoia, the paranoia actually stopped as I got a bit older. But during that period when I was using it day, I was completely paranoid because there's things I should have been doing that I weren't doing because I was doing that. But I always managed to work through it, if you, if you know what I mean. So I was always earning money and I ran a business then. I started my business, my first business at, at 21 and that was the business I ended up selling and, and really making the money that I've got today. So I don't know how I did it, but I managed to uh, communicate on the phone and, and, and work for it. But I'd be awake for days at a time and I'd see things running about. I'd think that people, my clients were going to come around my house. Sometimes people did because... I wasn't available, or I didn't turn up to something, or cool. people were worried about me. I just wouldn't, and I wouldn't open the door. So that caused my paranoia, where I'd stand upstairs and looking at like an angle where I could see down, but they couldn't see up. I could do that and, you know, all sorts of stuff. Crawled along the floor past windows so um, people couldn't see me. Um, go upstairs, unplug mm-hmm. the phone. You, you, anything that anybody's done or anyone can think of, I did it. Um, I lived that life, and it's terrifying. It's terrifying for no reason, which is worse than being scared for a reason because you believe it's it's, it's real. And what's actually happening is you are mentally torturing yourself, and you are mentally ill. Is the truth? You don't know it at the time, but you are. What I like, <laughs> what I like. Are you? I don't know. What, what, are you allowed to swear on this podcast or or not?
0: Yeah, sure. Okay, yeah. you are
1: mentally of <laughs> I, I call you, you are mentally fat. Mm-hmm. You are in the toilet. Mm-hmm. You are dumb. But you don't know it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And looking back at that period, and I mean, nothing glamorous. N- my using was never glamorous. I never did the stuff you see in films. I wish I did because I would have had a great time if my life was like that, but mine wasn't. You know, I wasn't yeah, in I... clubs and get, I wasn't. I was by myself, <laughs> sad and alone, rolling mm-hmm. on the floor looking for white powder that didn't exist sometime. Do you know what I mean? And trying to get more. Yeah. And...
0: No, I've, I've been there. I've been, I mean, I I never fit into the big party scene. I tried that in LA sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, they'd have these huge parties at Gate and then they'd be, it'd be a 360 degree view of, you know, Hollywood Boulevard, of uh, Sunset Boulevard. And you're up there in the hills and they've got these glass sculptures and these naked women dancing. And it's just, it's insanity. Like you don't even recognize It's not real life. It's a surreal place. And I've been to celebrity parties as well, Halloween parties, things like that. And it's just you don't it's not real life. No. It's not real life. And I felt disconnected, right? And so I would I would I would I would definitely leave. And then when you get home, there's it's actually a bigger it's a bigger disconnect because when you get home, you're like, here's my normal life. Even though it's still far, far above and beyond what most people have, the excess is so incredible when you deal with those celebrities and how they, you know, how they operate that mm-hmm you almost feel like you don't have anything when you leave. It's, it's really a strange feeling, but I would do the same thing. I would be alone and um I would be paranoid and I, I would feel just terrible most days. And, and, you know, nothing really got me out of it. And I ended up getting married and then I ended up, well, I didn't get married. I had a kid first. And so I, I had, I, my girlfriend at the time got pregnant and that sort of changed me. That that's what sent me into this different place where I, I got to stop. I said, I got to stop this or I'm going to hurt this kid and I can't do that. Um, what was like your mo- – so you had, you, you had to have a moment in here of clarity that where you said, okay, this happened. Like this this has got to stop. When was that moment of clarity and how did that work for you?
1: Are we talking about when I finally stopped or when I first tried to stop okay um, so we,
0: we we all have those moments where we try and then we go back because it's very easy to rationalize years going back but 10 years you know what what was the what was the big moment of you know i'm sure you had a few of them before the big one but what was the moment of clarity where everything just kind of snapped i'm sure there were multiple times leading up to it but what was the straw that broke the camel's back where you said i'm done
1: i need yeah, to stop I, I think i was done probably five years before i was actually done so i, I those last five years i wasn't using very often but every I just, I just had a friend of mine here from recovery, and I said to him, like the first, the last five years, I probably binged every six months or something. It could be every three months, it could be every month, but not often. It would go for three or four days. It was just, it was just sad. And the last time I, I went to uh, London with my wife, and I, and I started to use the day before she was already in London. So I met her in London, and I was already, I'd already been up for a, a one day. And I went there, uh, got there, went to what I needed to do with her. And I carried on. My wife does not use. My wife barely drinks. She's one of the normal civilians that are quite irritating. Mm-hmm. But
0: did you did you try to did you try to convince her that you weren't high?
1: Yeah, every time I never tell the truth. So um, the second morning, yeah. the second morning when I was mm-hmm. in London, I, I'd seen that there was some vodka in the cupboard, and because she'd been there with some friends, and she, normal, so I'm, I'm I'm drinking the vodka. By this point in my using, I'm drinking. I drink neat vodka out of a bottle, and I sniff drugs. So I'm doing that, but she's asleep in the other room. And every time she goes to the bathroom, I'm running in the other room and swigging. And anyway, she realizes in the morning and for the first time ever, she left me. Not left me as in on marriage. My wife is my savior, as in she saved me everywhere. Every time I was like it, she'd come and find me. But this time she left me and she left me. And don't get me wrong, I didn't stop that day. I carried on for another day in London. I went home. I live 200 miles north of London. So I went home the following day. I carried on. I spent one night at home. I then, dr- I then went back 400 miles south to a place called Brighton because I had to be at an event on the Saturday. I got there on a Friday night and I I wasn't using drugs, but I'd, I'd carried on drinking and I went to sleep. I woke up on the Saturday morning and I thought, I can't do this event I'm supposed to go to. Oh, and I went back home <laughs> without doing the event. And I walked in the door and I looked at her as I walked in the door and I thought I'm sick and tired of being sorry and look and having to look at you looking at me like that. I'm sick of hurting you, I'm sick of breaking it, I'm sick of breaking you, I'm sick of breaking me, I'm sick of how I feel, and I'm fucking sick of life I like it, and I'm done. And I was done. But I was done before I was done. I just every so often I'd fall off, so it wasn't mm-hmm. it wasn't like I'd gone from partying every week to to nothing. It was a gradual using less and less and less. But worse when I did, it was it was bad. Before I stopped, every time I'd use, and that was a five day binge, which was average at that point. If I was going to go off and binge, and at that point I walked in the house and I looked at and I thought I never ever. Ever want to say sorry to the person I love again for for what I'm for this reason? I mean, if I if I if I walk past her and trip her over by mistake, I'm sorry. But what I'm saying is, if yeah, you know, yeah. for damaging myself and and your love for me and ruining, I ruined something for her in those two days that she wanted to do that we never did because of me, and I never wanted that to happen ever. again. Yeah. And from that, that day onwards, I was done till
0: today. Yeah. And that's one of the, that's one of those points where you got to go, okay. You can keep telling her right at that point, you're standing there together. You're looking at her. She's looking at you. She's emotional. She's upset. She's actually done with you probably at that point. She's like, look, dude, (laughs) you've told me this over and over and over again. I don't buy it. I don't believe it. Actions speak louder than words. And then you activate it, but it takes time. Doesn't it? It's, it's one of those things where you, you could tell her till you know, you're blue in the, blue in the teeth, but it doesn't matter because she, she wants to see the action. And I've been there. So did you, did you do something at that point that changed it where you're like, okay, like what, what were the steps you took? Did you go to rehab? Did you do anything unique that changed it this time? What were like those steps? Like, I know there's that moment of clarity, but what happened to make you like, what were the steps you took? Did you start using some techniques? Did you change up your routine? Did you exercise? Yeah. What changed to make you stop?
1: Going back, I I first went to my first ever AA meeting or CA meeting or NA meeting, whatever you want to call it, at 23 years old. So I knew, it, I knew it very young that I was mm-hmm. fucked, as I like to call it. I went to rehab for a week at 25 for anger, <laughs> um, not drug abuse. Yeah,
0: I saw you said. I thought you said you're you're addicted to anger as yeah. well, which I, I get you.
1: And they told me that. So like. To be honest, that week, they gave me a book called Anger is a Drug," and I thought, oh, my is not cocaine. It's fucking anger. And I left after a week, and I went back for a month when I was 30. I went to rehab again when I was 30. Um, and I was, you know, I didn't stay sober after rehab, but it was better. Um, but that also caused more issues, because I think your family, when you first go into rehab for 30 days, think, and everyone thinks, that 30 days is going to fix me forever, and that's not true. Um, and I, I don't, and I was a, a daily AA, CA. I went every every day of the week, and mm-hmm. I'll be honest with you, it didn't work for me that. And I know it works for a lot of people, but for me, and this is this is my issue, not AA or CA's issue. I manipulated it because I'm good with people. It's probably my biggest skill, and I'm good in groups, as in. Football groups and whatever, and I know what you want and what you want and what you want and what I can do to make my life easier. So, like, I was in meetings and I'd have an old lady making me cakes and somebody else making me ice cream. If I, you know what I mean, and someone doing this, and I manipulated the meetings and I used them in the wrong way. But after that point, I didn't go back to meetings. I I simplified my life very simply. And I looked at things that I don't like. So my biggest problem still of today is being by myself. I hate it at night. I can't bear it. Everything I like doing, as in my favorite thing to do is to sit in the kitchen or in the front room in the lounge with my wife and watch the telly. When no one's got to talk, I just like it. It's my favorite thing, watching a box set, watching a movie. As soon as she's not there with me at night, I can't do it, I hate it. So I had to look at that and I had to get techniques to, first of all, I had my friend stay with me and then afterwards walk, Getting in the bath, whatever it is to, to avoid my head with that. I also got into a routine, like you just said, I wake up now between five and 6 a.m. naturally. Now, that's whether I go to bed at 9 p.m. or I go to bed at 1 a.m. It's I still wake up at five to six, I go in the gym. I'm lucky enough to have a gym and a pool in my ha- in my home. I go in the gym and I go my Peloton, I do my weights, whatever it is, I do that. I then spend I have a coffee and I drink out of this bottle, called Barry the Bottle, for Mm -hmm. much as I can anyway in the morning. I talk to my dog, Um, I do some emails, I get ready at nine, might have a coffee with my wife, go to work, do whatever I'm doing on the phone. And I might train again in the afternoon. My business partner is sober for 24 years. I'm sitting in an office with him most of the time, that helps. And I come home, I I try and eat properly, I go to bed and I like to go to bed at 9pm. Maybe, you know, watch telly with my wife. And if I can stick in that routine, it suits me very well. And I think, I mean, the guy that was here before that I was talking to from AA, who has been a friend of mine for a long time. We were talking and I said, look, I said the one thing for me, and I found I'm very lucky in this point. I never liked alcohol. I never liked the taste of alcohol. I don't like the way alcohol made me feel. I never drank alcohol without using drugs. So mm-hmm. the pull of alcohol, I don't have that. I don't want it. don't get me wrong. If I start, I'm going to take drugs and I will drink litres of vodka, but I don't want it. So I don't go, oh, I want it. Doesn't There's alcohol in the fridge. I won't touch it. I never drank indoors when I was using when I was married. I'd go out. Yeah. So I'm very lucky in that respect. And I find that if I live in the day and not one foot in the past, one foot in the future, and pissing on the present, which I used to do, I'm okay. If I concentrate on today, like you messaged me, when can you do it, I can do it tomorrow? Because the quicker I do it, the more I talk about it, the better I feel and the better it is for me because I remind myself of those horrendous days, weeks, months, years, where I sat in hotel rooms or or apartments by myself, watching daytime telly while taking drugs and drinking vodka. And today I get to sit on a podcast with you from the other side, nearly the other side of the world, basically, in a different time zone, talking about the same problem that we've never met. But yet, you know how I feel and yeah. I know how you feel. Now, that is so powerful.
0: Yeah, we, we have that. Yeah. Oh, it's amazing. And that's why I do it. That's yeah. why I'm up at 4.30 in the morning preparing, watching material, because I, I a normal life is not what I'm used to. No. A normal life, like you said, you get in your head and it can take you and it can take you really fast. And here we are, we have this commonality, mm-hmm. no matter what race, no matter what age, no matter what sex, no matter whatever it is, here we are, right? No matter what background, we got this thing, man, and it in it, it does work on us. And it's a disease that tries to tell us every single morning that we wake up, we don't have it. Yeah. And like, unless we convince, unless we talk, and we do what we're doing here, you know, we can fall off. And I know what that looks like. And I don't think I've got another next time. I mean, I've had a car accident where I broke my neck. And after that, I still continue to drink. You know, what do you think I did? I left the hospital. I drank, man. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of how this disease works. And so, yeah, I do this because of that. I do this because of, you know, the the idea that not only does it shed a light on this for other people, because we're helping people here. And I sure hope that, you know, we give some people some hope because you've had a lot of success. I mean, I know you had success. Yeah. I know you did. I know you were you're a bright guy. You were brought up in a, a very, <clears throat> you know, intelligent way. You probably had great schools. You, you're smart. You're effective. You're a good businessman. You made this money when you were young. But still, what is the difference between using like that? Like, do you think you could have kept the business up, or would you have lost everything and you kept using? And and how did it change you? So you stopped using. Did you become a better businessman because you were now able to have a better head on your shoulders?
1: Yeah, would that work? I think. I think that's a very good question. I think that if I would have carried on using and running the business, yes, I would have lost lost it because I wouldn't. By the end of my by the end of my using, I couldn't function. I always say to, but this is how my wife used to know if I was using my voice. And I'm not saying he uses. I'm saying my voice. I go like Ozzy Osbourne now. Nah. So if I drink and use, I can't. My brain and my verbality doesn't work. I'm mumbling now. Nah. I'm a shell of a person once I start. So. Hundred percent, because most of my businesses are, are sales type businesses, and I'm on the phone, or and so I wouldn't have been able to do it. And the other thing that I would say, most all of my success, all of it, is down to my wife, because my wife is a very successful businesswoman. She employs over <clears throat> a thousand people herself in a different type of business, and what she did when I met her was straighten my straighten my businesses up because they were successful, but I wasn't um, running them in the right way. Tax VAT running it how you should run it. I was using it because I needed cash. I'd take cash out and buy drugs or fucking pay this. Or, do you know what I mean? It was it was chaotic. So without those things happening, no, I wouldn't have done it. But I did sell it in, when I was 32 and I was, I'd was been sober for a year, a year and a part bit at that point. And obviously it wouldn't have happened because I sold it to an American group and – uh, a, a using me, a drunk me, wouldn't have been able to get through those meetings or, or function during those conversations because I would have thought, give me this money and then I'm off I'm off and running or it would have fell over because I would have fucked up or turned up to a meeting or they would have had a social event and I would have got messy because probably well, that's what I did. Mm-hmm. I couldn't do anything else. But at the same time, I look at it like, and I'm not, it never helped, don't get me wrong, using never helped me at work. But I think people with that these type of brains, it can be used in a, in a positive way as well. It can be used yeah. where we don't um, stop. And you, I've I've always been good at. If someone, I say this to everyone: if you want to be successful, you don't listen to the word no. So if if I bring somebody up to buy my book that's out at the moment and they don't want to stock it, I'll ring back. I'll ring back tomorrow. It's a little bit like when you ring the dealer, we don't answer, you ring again all night. Mm -hmm. It's the same concept. So, you know, that that willing to just keep going, which is keep going with drinking drugs or work or gym or life, can actually be a really positive thing. And then you get sober, you become healthier, and then you think, well, actually, I don't need to do all the things I'm doing now because a lot of the time I I would use, feel like shit, but then try and work harder to make up for what I've done so now i get a very even balance where i go well it's 11 a.m nearly 12 a.m here and i haven't got to work yet and Mm -hmm. because i had someone in recovery here before i didn't I can't ask the phone about work but success wise i wouldn't i I can't imagine i would have got what i got or got to where i got to without sobriety um
0: yeah. I'm the same. I, I mean, it's for me, I think we work differently. Like, and there's a way my brain works where I, I need to be working. Like I need to be speaking to people working, whether that's even developing Sam developing video or content. I'm constantly, my brain goes a million miles a minute. Like I'm creating something in my head 24 yeah. seven. My gig became marketing. Right. And I think marketing, I mean, I don't know you can tell me about this, but marketing is kind of everything. I, I was, I was watching this, sales as well but you know marketing and sales run a fine line right so when you're in you know this this i know this business you sold i heard you talking about this and it was it was through gambling right and you were talking about and i'm going right into business cuz you started talking business um you mentioned that you cut out the middleman which was the marketing yeah, in one of these businesses, can you talk? I, I got really curious. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about how that worked and how you cut that out? And then what what was the business that they were doing when they were doing that marketing? What were you What were you handling?
1: So my 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 business started in sports agency, so I was a sports agent, very much like the film Jerry Maguire. So I represented mm-hmm. footballers and boxers, and I represented Floyd Mayweather in Europe for, mm-hmm. for marketing and, and and a few other box world champions, but mainly footballers. And I had a friend, um, and it was a big agency in that industry, but my breaking point where we, we got bigger and into other industries was I had a friend that worked for a worldwide online gambling company. And I was with him one day, and he took me to an event in um, a, a big uh, conference place in London, and the event's called ICE. It's the largest European gambling convention. And when I was there, I met a lot of these big, big worldwide Billion-dollar companies that are online gambling, that are sponsoring football clubs, shirt deals, stadium deals, all of this. And I was talking to the, the, the guy at the time, it was my friend, and I said to him, how is this working? How is this company in China finding West Ham United in London or whatever? Who's doing that? And we're using they're using this marketing company or this PR company, and that PR company is spending their money with the UK Premier League club.
0: A lot of it too.
1: It was millions. It was millions. The average deal, yeah. was, the average deal was three million uh, pounds, about $5 million at the time mm-hmm. was the average deal going in uh, mm-hmm. or their average mm-hmm. budget for the year per, per club. So what I did was, and my friend worked for a company called SBO Bet, which at the time were a huge Chinese um, online gambling worldwide. It went bust eventually, but at that point they were still going. And they were spending three million pounds, $5 million with this marketing company. All in sport. So I said, okay, what are you paying? And they were paying 10% of the budget to the marketing agency to spend their money and to find their deals, which is, which is standard. Like, you know, 8 to 12% standard. So I looked, What does
0: that marketing look like? What do they do for that 10%? They
1: were literally they were doing the branding, but they were literally finding them the deals. So they were going out to okay. market and finding them the deals. But I already had that market. Mm-hmm. I had all the football clubs. I knew them all. So what I did was go, okay, you give me that money, I'll give my company that, that, that piece, that enabling me to spend your money. And I would charge you nothing, zero. So they went, okay, they didn't start giving me all the money. So they give us a, a budget. I went to the football clubs and I said, do you want this money? They would say, yes, I'd tell them who it was, but I would sign an agreement with a football club that the football club would pay me out of their end. So I would say to the football club, okay, we're going to bring you half a million dollars. But for that, we want the same rate, 10%. Sometimes it was five, sometimes it was 15, depending on what the deal was. We want that, and you're going to pay us. They agreed, because that is, it's a lot of money coming into the football club, and I had the control of it. And it started like that. And I ended up probably being the main agent in the country for outside the UK gambling companies spending their money. And we ended up doing huge shirt deals. One deal was $12 million. And it was all coming through us, but we was never charging the salts. We, so we were saving them 10% on marketing costs, but still delivering the same marketing. But I was getting paid by the clubs. So we turned it on its head. Yeah. And it was all because I had this one contact that was in that industry. And when he told me how it works, I thought, that's not how it works in my industry. And I mean, you were nearly in the same industry. So by doing that, we created such a lot of influx of cash um, that people started hearing about me, hearing about us in the States. And that's eventually how we sold. Now I sold to CAA, which was a big Hollywood agency at the time, and you know, it it was a deal that came out of nowhere, but it was all based on this money and also with Floyd. But it was um it was all based on that, and it was just that one. One thought of mine. And my brain does work like that. I always, even now, work like that. How can I save you money but, and generate money somewhere else? Because it's the best way of, of getting the, the deal together. And we, we ended up... Yes,
0: you, you make, yeah, you make too good a deal to turn down. It's like you, you, if you make it so lucrative that they'd be stupid to say no. Yeah.
1: But they were saving... I mean on it's that, a win. On that $12 million, $12 million deal, which is with uh, Fulham Football Club, on their shirt and stadium... That 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 agency, that gambling agency, saved one point two million dollars on that deal. Yep. So that money goes that their, their budget's higher into the club, so they're getting more. And it's a multiple year deal. So it's not it's not twelve million up front, it's twelve million over four years or whatever. But by doing that, I sort of cornered the market. And in the end we had all of the clubs coming to us going, Well, what have you got? Can you do this with it? And we were then going out to market with this with their branding tool different things so we ended up doing the snooker the darts all different stuff because different companies have different budgets and it grew from there yeah. and well, it- the branding
0: the branding piece is easy right i mean it's like no brainer branding no problem
1: if you're dealing for sbo bet or bet365 their branding's already done it's a very clear logo on the colored background because that's their gambling website that drives the people yeah. to gamble. So it wasn't even like you had to come up with adverts. You are literally talking about a, like this is printed on a printed boss fine on a football shirt. It wasn't rewriting the wheel. It was rewriting how the wheel worked as in who paid for it, but it was the same wheel.
0: Wow. So, so what you, I mean, people out there that, that want to know about business that want to understand how it works, Relationships, one conversation was a big game changer in that relationship, wasn't it? It
1: was massive. But I believe in that today. Most my success, even now, comes out of I'm very good. I'm very good in, in, in two ways. I'm very good with people, but I'm also very good at remembering what probably every single person I've ever met does. Now, I might not remember everyone's name forever, but I always remember what they do. So something could come up mm-hmm. at work yesterday. In a sector, and I go, That's so and so, let's ring him. You know, I mean, I might not have spoken to him for five years, but I'm willing to make that call and put that together and go, Do you want to do this? Do you want to? What do you think of this? And do you want to do it? And I think that communication and people, my whole life is built on that.
0: Yeah, fortitude too, to, to continue to fight. Like, I remember when I was doing like, when I, when I was doing acting and I was in there, I, I, I actually, my agent ended up running CAA okay. and, and so, uh, Michael Cooper was his name. I don't know if you know, Michael, Not but know. he was a, he was a big guy there. He, he started his own agency, but, <clears throat> you know, I never really took no for an answer. I just kept going, but it was hard, you know, and I ended up telling Hollywood no in some ways because I just didn't agree with a lot of their politics and a lot of the, um, what they wanted you to do for certain kinds of roles, you know, but, um, there, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, like you said, man, you know, you can't take no for an answer and it's all about the relationships. So you're, you're kind of like, you're kind of like, you got multiple businesses, right? And so does your wife and you got, you guys work together. Obviously that has worked out very well for you working with your wife now that's not always the case for people yeah. um but but tell me a little bit about that i mean I know she's she's from what I saw on one of the podcasts she's a real smart woman
1: My wife's from is extremely smart, but she's come from a different background to me my my background was very stable uh, she'd come from not from not that she was she's had times where she was homeless at fifteen sixteen years old, and she started to work on the railway when she was eighteen uh, you know laying track. So she was digging out Wow, eighteen, And then she started from that, the person she worked for said, "Do you know, anybody that wants to work, and she earned a pound an hour out of the people that wanted to work from the agency she was working for. She then started her own agency, around 21 years old, and that agency still going to stay and she's the largest agency in the UK. She still owns all of it. And she runs it. Wow day to day impeccably well, and she, she works differently to me, which is probably why the businesses we do together work so well because she's very, very good with the numbers and spreadsheets and I, I've always not had that much interest in that. I like the people and the deal, so yeah. we'll do deals with people I've, I've actually got I, I, I've actually got what I call two wives <laughs> I've got another a daytime wife called Phil, <laughs> who's my other mm-hmm. business <laughs> very similar <laughs> to my actual wife. I call them daytime oh, no. because they both like spreadsheets and the numbers, and I don't want to know about that. So we'll do deals, i do deals with both of them. And both times they'll say to me, are the people okay? And what's it like? And I go, yeah, it works. And I go to them, what's, what do the numbers look like? Does it work? Yes, and then we'll do the deal. But she's grown, going back to my wife, she's grown a, 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 a what, what I would call now a small group, a conglomerate of businesses, all in the rowing electrical sector, that's building towards being a, a 100 million pound business um that you know, that she owns and she runs every day. She's at she's at one of them, them offices now. They've got multiple offices. They're in they're now opened in Saudi Arabia. Um potentially in Canada next year, a lot of rails going to Canada. So that's being looked at. And she's a, a very hard working opposite to me in, in the way she works. <laughs> opposite to me. Mm-hmm. Um more efficient. Yeah. You know, spreadsheets
0: are not my game, man. I yeah, can't do uh, it the spreadsheets it's tough. It's like tough, I, the, the number again. Yeah.
1: If I said to her, like, she'll wake up in the morning and go ring her FD and they're on the bank. If I said to her, Nico, how much money is in that company today at one o'clock? She'll tell me to the penny without looking. And what, how much money is owed and who owes this? She knows everything. She used to, her biggest issue, I used to think of business, was she micromanaged everything and she needed to let go. When she started to let go and just manage management and the bit and the financial side of the businesses, it grew massively in the last three years. but geez, Wow
0: geez, so, geez. so focusing on one thing that's key, right? So, so like okay, so if you're out there and you I saw Matthew McConaughey do an interview and he said, I had a record company, I had a you know a, a, another, some other tech company and he's like, I had my production company for movies, mm-hmm. and I had all these different companies and <clears throat> he said one day, the production company the record company that i owned was calling me and i didn't i was about to pick up the phone and i stopped and he's like i stopped and i waited and i thought why am i waiting and he let it ring and then he said he picked up the phone called his lawyer and said i want to close all my companies but my production company and just focus on one thing acting and so kind of what you're saying for business purposes like your wife like sort of focusing on one aspect of things really streamlined it and made a tremendous impact
1: that's exactly it she still listen she still manages she'll know every single person that works in that business like everything for sure because that's what she's like i mean there's over a thousand people working in that business now and she will know everything about all of them because that's what she's like but she used to because because her industry is is rail maintenance work it's 24 hours a day so she used to sleep with a phone under the pillar and if somebody had because because of her product is people people mess up. So sometimes people don't turn up to work on site, but she would, yeah. people would have her number and her phone would ring at 2am. And then she'd get up, she'd bang the lights on. I'm like, what's going on? And she's talking on the phone because someone's not turned up. And I'm saying, Nicole, for mm-hmm. all these people to do do these roles and you're on the phone at 2am. That's stopped now. So she's put that in place and she's, she's, she's formed a board in effect. Cause before she would, she had this huge company, but she was, there was no. What she, she's got a board now. She was the only person running it. So, and mm-hmm. you're talking like six, seven businesses all in the same umbrella. So now they've all got MDs, oh. and there's a structure to it, and it, and, it's, and it works so far. And I think that that gamble of putting management. I think a lot of people with small, medium businesses worry about management structure and bringing new people in. But if you want to go to that yeah. next level, you've got to. It, t- it might take five years, yeah, yeah. right, write MD? But you need to do it. If you want to grow it,
0: relinquishing some of that control, like relinquishing some of the control is tough and and you really got to make those decisions the right way. Who am I hiring? Who am I bringing in, uh, any advice on, on how you pick people to bring in because that sounds like it's really a key element in success.
1: I think that that's so hard. And if you could simplify it, you'd have absolute gold on your hands. In, in all honesty, we've, we probably spent five years, going for that process of a business. And there's been three or four that were wrong, because you can only know them pre because there was other businesses in your industry, or meet them, interview them and read what you know about them on CV and check it, but you actually don't know what that person's like, until they're working within your business. And some people as, as we all know, talk absolute bullshit. And mm-hmm. when they get in, you quickly re- you know, quickly realise they're not the right person. I think you have to work out how that exits and and that problem. But we feel like now we've had the you know we've had an, we've promoted we've promoted within on some bits like RFD was always really RFD. She's been with us twelve years. She's now officially FD, but she really has always been. And we looked at doing that. And we've just put somebody in from a a billion billion dollar company, one of our clients really, one of their management to sit within the board. And it's people that are already in that higher industries, higher companies that we're trying to say, well, come and work here, come with us. You're gonna, you're gonna get massive growth. There's obviously an exit coming, and you you, it. We're more hands on. So she's much more. You can ring her up, you can talk about, you can have input into the business. You're not a, a PL, we're not a PLC where your voice is no laughing and no one cares if you work. It's important here what you do, and that, that's where we're at. I mean, I do something completely different. I run a business now that's. Um, a little bit you've got a program called sharp tank in america haven't you um mm-hmm. my business is kind mm-hmm. of like that it, it's not it's not so much like that but people come to me with ideas or investments and we decide whether we're going to do those ideas or investments with them mm-hmm. um and it can be anything and that's, that makes sense that's what i do yeah. you know we do investments
0: yeah that's that's you know really being an entrepreneur i mean a lot of people can learn a lot from you and, and your stories, and I'm, I'm sure we could talk forever about business because it's a passion of mine too. I changed businesses really quickly. I went from uh, when recovery show business just wasn't going to cut it anymore. I still like it, but you know, I I ended up having to market some of these films that I made, and in the marketing world, I started to learn the digital marketing world and how sales work because you got to sell your own movie. You make a product, you know, you can make a product that's great. But do you know how to sell it?
1: That's so right. Do
0: you know how to market it?
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're so for it. You know, you're so right. You're so right. You're so right. Mm-hmm. Everyone has an idea or product. 1% of people can sell it, market it, sell it. Mm-hmm. That's where everything lies, really. It ain't just having the idea. Mm-hmm. You know, you're so right. You're so right. Mm-hmm. So how did you go about mm-hmm. doing that?
0: Well, I started to poke around online and I started to try to communicate through social media and figure out, well, you got to know who your target is. First of all, you got to figure out who the hell am I selling to and who wants to buy this and what kind of problem am I solving for people? And once I started to understand, okay, this is a problem I'm solving for these people and they really need this product. And then I figured out how do I communicate with them? How do I communicate the message that this product's available and that it will help them, it will help improve their life, whether that be financially and a you know, health perspective, uh, whatever that may be
1: mm-hmm.
0: and started to create marketing around that and then figure out whether or not you can scale that marketing. Right. I mean, can you, is the ad spend worth it? Are you, are you getting that return on that ad spend? I mean, that's really where you're at. And then once you start to realize that, it's, and also how much effort is it taking? Like if you got to work all day long, you know, to get that product out there and sell it and make money on it, that's difficult. It's better to figure out if you can create some passive income and then do that in, various different companies right exactly. because then you're really you're really making some money and I, I think that's what a lot of people miss you know they work so hard to create a product but they don't really think before they even start creating the product how the hell am i going to sell this and who wants it
1: I, I couldn't agree more i could not agree more yeah. i think that to, there's a there's a couple of things that people hit, hit against marketing unless you can do it yourself will cost you money and I, the biggest thing i find that like i see at work is someone comes in and they say, "I thought of this idea." We had one this week. It was an animal product, and I said to me, "What do you think of it?" And I said, "Yeah, I, I get it. How have you protected it?" We haven't. I said, "Okay." Yeah. So I said, "If you bring this out instantly, whoever's the biggest in this country will demolish you. If if it's a good product." But they said, oh, "I don't think that will happen." I said, it, "Yes, it will." So, firstly, protect it. Secondly. How do you afford mm. to manufacture it? But for mainly, how do you afford to sell it? Because if you keep discounting, you won't make enough money. What is your margin? You know what I mean? And if you're going to bring a marketing company in, well, that's going to cost you a lot of money. So how, how can you do that yourself? You know, we, now, nowadays, because of the businesses, I mean, I, I, we, we have a lot of products in retail, like supermarket retail in the UK. Now, mm. that takes a lot of time to do. But once you're in, you can pick the phone up and say and and sell, sell at volume, but you still have to have a marketing plan with every product that goes into retail they want to know how much money are you going to spend on marketing and how are you going to do it and who's involved in that marketing and that's the bit that most people can't do
0: yep, yeah, that makes sense they also you know like you said the patent i mean if you if you decide to work with these people and they don't patent it. Okay, so you got to do that work now. Now that's legwork you got to figure out, and that's going to cost you money. So if people out there have a product, protect it, patent it before you even take it to somebody to try to sell it. You know, it's 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 a no brainer to do that, and have a marketing plan.
1: Yeah, I mean, and, I probably, I mean you got to have a I probably see a, a product, and I, if I wanted to, I could do this, but I would never do it because morally, I don't believe in doing this because of how I live my life. But I probably see a decent product once every month that I could steal. Because they haven't protected mm-hmm. it. Now I always say, look, I can't do this with you because you're not protected. But I'm telling you now, go and protect it because people will do it. People will take your ideas. We've got we've got um, two patterns that have gone through on a product I've done with my wife, which is which is a raw industrial product, and that launches on Monday for a distributor. Um, looks like it's gonna be really good, but it's taking mm-hmm. a year to get right protection on it. Once the protection's on, your sales automatically come in. If it's the right product, mm-hmm. in your industry because you're protected. No one else can do it, and you can see it uses a service. But again, we're talking. We, last night we started having meetings around the marketing of this product next week. How is this going to be done? The advertising can now start because the distributing deals in. How are we going to do that? You know, it's a key part to every business, and it's a key conversation that we have every day.
0: Yeah, and I, I think that's. A, a, a lot of people don't understand that, Joe. And, and I, I tell you, I didn't really understand that till I took a, a rather large job at a corporation. And then I started and I took that job because I wanted to understand how business worked, right? Mm. And I didn't understand it. There's all these processes. There's all these compliance things that happen, right? Behind the scenes to get a product out. But people don't see that. And when they don't see that, they've just got this line of sight that says, this is the greatest product in the world. I'm passionate about it and I'll do anything to get it out. But there's a process that people go through. It's it's called business for a reason, right? And it's, it's a real job. It's a real thing that people have to know. It's sales and marketing. It's, it's a thing. Um, it's you know, I, I, I could talk to you forever about this, honestly. It's just, a good I can subject. just keep going, bro. It's a good yeah,
1: subject. I so, know, it. It's a, it's a good subject to think that, you know, it doesn't matter what it what what it is, whether it's a book, a cake, a phone, you know, anything you use, a touch, has been marketed by somebody somewhere. Um, my daughter works in in marketing at um, a Brand mm-hmm. Axel Aragato, which, to be honest with you, I've never heard of, but. <laughs> it's a worldwide <laughs> fashion brand I never heard of it but it's massive i didn't even know it's got it's got a million employees or something but i 've never heard of it she she's got she right. works in, in marketing in pre-production marketing she does the shoots and they do they do a new shoe for their are mainly tra- a trainer brand and, and streetwear brand they do a new shoot every week all for marketing and branding every wow. week somewhere in the wow. world she's doing it every week so, and I mean, not just so you got to wrap a package. Yeah, and it's not just small stuff. I mean, they, they're a, they're are a huge company now. But so they're spending big money, six figures a week on marketing. She tells me, I'm like, it's blowing my mind. But it, that has to be that has to be grown. That 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 was started by three friends in Sweden ten years ago. They're doing <laughs> uh, collaborations with Burberry and Mulberry and all sorts of people, you know. So you know, three people is three people at 21 in Sweden come up with a brand. And now it's one of the world's lot quickest growing brands, you know, 10 years later. So that they've marketed that incredibly mm-hmm. well, haven't they? Because it's come from. Nothing. Oh
0: yeah. You know? Yeah. So, so protect your patent and never take no for an answer. Never take no for an answer.
1: piece of advice, my, my one piece of advice, and I, I felt, um, I'm guilty of this. Uh, but it must be six years ago, I owned, I owned a group of gyms at the time. It was one of our investments. We had a group of gyms. And um, I met a guy that wanted to open a health food restaurant, just a cafe, health food restaurant. And I convinced him to let me buy half of it and call it the same name as my gyms. Anyway, I did no research into it. I did no research into him. He ended up turning, I'd, I'd invested into it. It opened, it's got my brand name on it and it's linked to my business. I then found out within three weeks he wasn't even a chef and he's cooking the food. I've had to buy, we've ended up having to buy him out and I was funding that business for nine months and I was over $100,000 lost and it was meant to be just a small business. Mm. It wasn't a big thing. I wouldn't shut it because of my ego. My ego and I thought it damaged my business and I was wrong and I actually had to go away somewhere for four days. When I was away for those four days, my wife went into that business, shut it, stripped it so when I got back there weren't even a kitchen in the building right mm. at the time mm. I, I weren't happy because I thought but I was losing money every week and I was spending 90% of my time sitting in a little cafe that was losing money when I'm running multi-million pound businesses everywhere else so I'm spending 90% of my time losing money and 10% of my time working in the things that I'm meant to be doing that are much bigger so she shut yeah. it was the best thing for me so my biggest piece of advice is know when to stop as well, you know, because if something that is losing money, you need to know there's a line. And secondly, don't let your ego get involved, because there's no ego in, in in business, really. We all got it, but we shouldn't have. And the third thing is, before you do anything, and I learned this myself, make sure you know more about that business and the people that are going to work in it than anybody else in the world. So do your research. Due
0: diligence. Due diligence. I messed up
1: massively. Yeah. I went into an industry, I thought, looked good on the outside food, which I know won't go nowhere near because it's just a headache after headache. And, you know, I didn't do research on the person I was investing in because my ego got carried away. And I thought, I can do this, you know, and I believed them. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm.
0: Now we're back to addiction, right? I mean... I mean, it kind of cycles back to that—that that same thing, right? I mean, we—we we don't want to let go of it, the ego, you know. Um, you know, the obsessing on something that's not making you money, and then you got, you know, your angel here saving you, pulling you out of it, going, "Hey, man,
1: yeah.
0: uh, you need to come back to reality." And my wife does the same thing. Yeah, you know, I'll be doing things. She's like, "What are you working on that for, still?" You know, you got to outsource that yeah. enough. But I'm I'm yeah. on it, man. It has to look perfect, you know, the perfectionism thing that comes in, right? Yeah. Where it's like, you know, progress, not perfection, but I always want to do the perfection. And I got to really slow myself down sometimes, man, you know?
1: Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think sometimes breathing and taking a step back can be the best thing you can do, especially when it's stressful. Your phone's ringing and you think, I need to talk to them. Actually, what is the, what you said earlier is right, what Matthew McConaughey said. What is the worst thing that happens if I don't answer that phone? Well, nothing. Nothing happens. Nothing. It's no different. It's still going to be there. And that person will still answer the phone when you ring them in a the day, two days, one hour. I tried to, I tried to, I only do if, if If I could live my life without a mobile phone, I would live without a mobile phone. It's just not mm-hmm. possible. No. But I tried to go away once a year no. and I don't look at the phone. So I get there on the holiday. I'll put it in the safe. I won't look at it. I'll get out a day to make sure my kids are all right. They're adults now, like my children to make sure they're all right. None of them have run me. And I put it back in the safe. Yeah. Uh, after that week, it's the best i feel all year. Because I'm not sitting. Oh, there, for sure. Yeah. I'm not sitting there for Instagram. I'm not sitting there for TikTok. And I'm not replying to stupid emails that I don't need to reply to. Yeah.
0: No kidding. liabilities, man. Like that phone ringing for Matthew McConaughey. That person on the other end of that line was just a liability. You know, you got to know your assets and your liabilities, right? And I think sometimes we, we lose track of that. And that phone is definitely a liability. I mean, it just pulls me away so many times to vapid, pointless, you know, wormholes of nothingness that really bear no fruit mm. often. Uh, you know, and so I feel you there. I know you got, I, I know you don't probably don't have a lot more time here, but I know you have a book that, uh, you, um, you just wrote, and I'm really interested to read this. Can you tell us a little bit about the book just so we can kind of promote that here a little bit on the podcast I'd love to see that.
1: So this is, this is a, this is, is, I'll tell you the story. It's a true story. It's called on days like these. So my father, um, in 1994 did Uh, started to do a book with somebody and they did they did loads of cassette tapes and a manuscript that I didn't know existed in 2014 20 years after that when they did them I was standing on the side of a football pitch watching my son play football for Manchester United's academy and I recognized the guy because the guy he did it with was my uh, junior football manager and he was a school teacher called Les Cleverow. And I recognised him. And I walked up the line and I said to him, are you Les Cleverow? And he said, yes. He said, it's Joe Seeley. I've not seen you in 20 years. Um, my dad at this point had been dead since 2001. So 13 years after he died. And he said, I've got your dad's book. I said, my dad never did a book, Les. He said he did. He did it with me. And I went round his home on the Tuesday. And he gave me a pat lunch sandwich box full of cassette tapes. And a, and a manuscript that they'd wrote on a word processor, one copy in paper, in nineteen ninety four. And I, I'll be honest with you, I've still not listened to those cassette tapes. But I did read the manuscripts, and it was badly written, <laughs> to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, but it took me, it took me to two thousand and nineteen to to actually decide to do anything with it. And I met a writer. Mm-hmm. It was during COVID, and his wife was. Um, she had cancer. So he was even in a bigger bubble in the UK where he couldn't leave his home. And I went to his house and I left these tapes and the manuscripts on the doorstep. I knocked on the door. I opened the window of the car. I waved to him. I'd never met him. He took, the, he took the tapes, took the book, and we spoke on the phone for 18 months. I didn't meet him for 18 months. When he was writing the book and he'd gone through all of the information he had, everyone that was involved in those tapes, my dad and Liz Cliff Rowe, had both died. So there was no one else to go back to. So he said to me, Joe, this is great, but it's only two-thirds of the book. I need to interview you, your mum, and my brother, and people to see how we're going to put this book together. Come to my home. First time I'd met him, it was two years after it started. And I started telling him about my abuse, how I felt, grief, my life, things I've done, everything else. And he said, we need to make the rest of the book about this this needs to be so what they've done is they've intertwined the stories so you get my dad's life his career manchester united and you get really my careers but the pain and my addiction and rehab and my relationship the rest and they've done it really well where they've, they've spent um a lot of time writing my dad's part in the present and mine in the past so it works really well and it's been a bestseller now for three months on amazon and I can I'll give you an exclusive. Do you want an exclusive?
0: I've just, yeah, of course.
1: I've just got a movie documentary deal signed this morning in the UK for. So it looks like it's going to be made into a, a doc film. Um, well. Wow, basically. that's great. Yeah, so it, it's done really well. I, I thought we'd sell three hundred copies and it wouldn't go anywhere because it's a, a it, my dad's been dead for for a long time and I don't find, think that my life's that interesting. Maybe, but it's done extremely well in in the uk um you can buy it worldwide, and you know there's a good message in there about family love recovery and pain to be honest with you um and it's a good yeah it's a good i'll send you one matt i'll send you one
0: oh i'd I'd love to uh i'd love to dive into it i was going to try but i mean we we did this so quick you were like yeah i'll do it i'm like okay i'm on it you know <laughs> let's let's get on this it was like next day we're like we're yeah, talking you know, there's
1: no um, like the present, is there you know in, in this life if you no. you know i could yeah. be drinking tomorrow you know, that's, that's, yeah, awesome. you
0: never you never know. You never know. I mean, look, look at your father, look the way life works. You just never know what, what's going to happen. And, yeah. you know, what a great thing to, to realize that story mm. and go, wow, you know, there's, there's more to this story. It's not just about my dad and like the fame and the success he had. It's also the fallout of like losing this legend, this, this idol, this, this father figure that was a great guy and the pain of addiction and how that works. I love it. I can't wait to check it out, man. I really appreciate it
1: it's done really well and I'm really pleased because I just, I said to somebody yesterday, if this, if it, all of the money from this book goes to charity from my side, the publisher makes most of the money though to be fair, but the money that we get is going mm-hmm. to charity and I said to somebody yesterday, if if one person, I can help one person by doing these podcasts or this book, it's good enough. It's good enough because I wish somebody at the time would have told me. I don't know if I would have listened. I don't know if I would have listened but I wish somebody would have mm-hmm. said it to me. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Hey, powerful stuff, man. Really powerful. Um, Can't thank you enough for jumping on here so quick and and chatting with me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, Let's do it again sometime.
1: Anytime you like, man, It's an important thing.